0: These canon wars that we've had in the United States have been going on for a long time. They've accelerated since George Floyd, but this isn't a new issue. Uh, Certainly by the late 80s and early 90s, there was starting to be a push to change the canon and to make it more racially representative of the country at large, and to get more women writers into the canon, and that means that some of the white men were pushed out, and that's something that's been going on for three decades now. So the canon that I read as an undergraduate in the late 1980s, that list of books would look nothing like what an undergraduate would be presented with in the United States at an elite college now. And the work that I take to be canonical, just within American literature, some of those names wouldn't register with a young college student today simply because they're not on the syllabi anymore. I do think there's a loss there, a loss of continuity, a loss of shared experience, a loss of shared meaning. And so, yes, I regard that as a, a negative development.
1: Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro and with me is the voracious reader Ricky Allpike. Ricky, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Well, I got some. I'm good, yeah, all right. But I go. I got some serious stuff to cover. Uh, So now, I I want our some of our audience who are very highly uh, impassioned about cultural war topics to listen to this episode and not to skip it, uh, because this is the real juice we've got a fantastic guest today absolutely uh, incredible uh, reader and writer jonathan clark now i guess my pitch what do you think of this Ricky? my pitch is that if you're fighting this culture war if you although matthew goodman says that there is no culture war and, and these are real issues so you, so you're tackling these issues mm-hmm. let's just say you win some of the battles or whatever what do we do after that mm. shouldn't you know we need something to talk about well you know while we 're in the trenches with our a k s just waiting for i don't know whoever blue haired crazies to 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 come and get us we, we should be able to say, Are any good books lately yes don't, what do you think
2: yes definitely uh i i would Yeah, i'm I'm totally on board with that idea uh we definitely have to have something to to do when the culture wars are over but also something to do while they're still on so we don't go absolutely fucking crazy and I would say to everyone yes listen to this episode you will get a lot out of it and I guarantee you will probably want to read some of the authors that we talk about in this podcast because uh, they are just super interesting and our guest is super interesting as well and just do it. Stay woke. Jonathan Clark is a contributing editor of City Journal. He's a critic, an essayist, a lawyer by training and profession. Jonathan has spent more than 20 years working in the New York offices of two large firms. He divides his time between Brooklyn and Vero Beach, Florida. Jonathan, welcome to The New Flesh.
0: Thank you so much, guys. It's great to be here. I've been looking forward to this all week. So, Jonathan, I'm fascinated by your living situation.
1: Uh, Now, if I'm correct, you split your time between New York and Florida. Is is that
0: correct? I say that... um, you know that was mostly my pandemic situation i'm a new yorker but uh, my mother's in vero beach and and uh my family and i briefly fled to florida during the worst of the new york pandemic uh so i spend a, a month or two a year down there but mainly mainly brooklyn new york so we've got eric adams in new york and we've got Ron DeSantis in florida and you know we hear some
1: stories about people who are perhaps a little dissatisfied with what you might call woke ideology and have have Uh, taken off to the warmer climes of of Florida. So we just wanted to get your perspective on the political climate of these two cities uh, since you've got a a foot in both camps, so to speak.
0: Things are pretty tough in New York right now. Uh, Crime has surged since the pandemic. I'm sitting in an office in midtown Manhattan right now. Manhattan feels a little spooky, a little deserted. Crime is certainly up. Homelessness is up. And we're not sure where things are gonna go. Uh, you mentioned that Eric Adams is the mayor of New York and has been for about a year. He's an he's an ex-police officer and ran on a get tough on crime message. I think he's having trouble getting traction uh, in part because the uh, DAs, the local district attorneys are not cooperating. And so a lot of things that used to be crimes aren't crimes anymore in New York. And so lots of the quality of life crime that we spent a long time working to control, things like subway fare jumping and uh, graffiti and uh, antisocial behavior in the subways and in the public squares, those things are um, a feature of living in New York once again. And so the public spaces feel like they're a little bit up for grabs right now. Not sure the good guys are winning that fight. And so you are seeing a lot of people leaving New York, uh, for places like Florida and Georgia and elsewhere, um, just not sure which way things are going to go. I think we're all rooting for Mayor Adams, but he's got a lot of work ahead of him, and uh, uh, he's got problems with the budget, and problems with the subway, and so it's a significant challenge.
2: Now, Jonathan, it, it sounds as though uh, we've returned to sort of a um, uh, you know a Martin Scorsese
0: looking New York City. I don't know, does it have a bit of a taxi driver feel? So Taxi Driver was made in the uh, early 1970s, uh, really at the peak of the crime and lawlessness that New York was then associated with. Starting with the Giuliani administration in the early 90s, New York succeeded in pushing violent crime down year after year after year for a period of 20 years or more. And with the pandemic and some other social upheavals in New York. We've started to lose ground. We're not all the way back to taxi driver. uh, But it feels like we're losing ground and that the momentum is with the forces of disorder now, to uh, to put it as bluntly as I can. And I hope we can get the ship turned before the city enters what we sometimes think of as the death spiral, where People don't feel safe. And so middle class families leave the city. And with those middle class families goes a lot of the tax base. And without the tax base, then you can't fund policing. You can't fund good subway service, which further drives people out. And that's where New York found itself in the 70s and 80s with a shrinking tax base and Unsafe streets, and I, I certainly hope we don't return return to that. But it's right now, it's hard to feel optimistic. We'll move on
1: in a second, Jonathan. But but I'm just interested: is there a level of outrage from from in your experience from from people out there? I mean, why why isn't there just constant um, heat and pressure on on uh, the higher ups to to just change this
0: overnight? Well, there is pressure. Uh, from conservative conservative media in New York, but as you can imagine, in a city like this, conservative media is very much in the minority. So, the New York Times and and New York One, which is you may not be familiar familiar with, is a is a local uh, television station that covers New York around the clock. Uh, those media centers are downplaying the crime issue, and it's really conservative media, the New York Post, places like the City Journal and uh, other conservative media outlets that are, that are pushing hard on crime. And so I do think that Mayor Adams feels the pressure, but he also has to serve a number of different constituencies. He's a black mayor in a city that is 25 or 30% black, so he has to serve that constituency. Um, and I think he's pulled in a bunch of different directions. And on top of that, he's got these looming fiscal problems. He's got to get the subway fixed, which is going to be a big lift. And he's faced with uh, declining morale and a lot of resignations in the NYPD. So I think he wants to do it. I don't think there's a lack of will there. Uh, I just think that uh, he's confronting some difficult some difficult problems, and it's it's not going to be an overnight fix.
2: Well, let's hope uh, New York can uh, pull itself together uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, perhaps, Jonathan, we, we we turn our focus towards literature now. Uh, now, I have a keen interest in music and, and looking back at my time growing up in the pre-internet 1990s, I saw that most people of my age listened to the same music or at least were kind of aware of the big songs or big acts of the 90s, whether they liked them or not. Uh, we all sort of had this collective life soundtrack. Now, with the demise of the music industry and with the rise of streaming, where people have pretty much the entire history of, of recorded music at, you know, at their fingertips, that collective soundtrack is gone, and I feel as though this is the same for books. I could imagine that in generations past, you could look at someone's home library and you might recognise titles and authors that you also read. Uh, at, at, you know, at school and university, kids were made to read classic literature, which isn't really the case anymore. So, um, you know, I guess these days a lot of people just don't read. Full stop. Uh, but I, I'm interested in what your thoughts are on the demise of. of of a common literary experience between people and is there value in people reading the same books?
0: I certainly think there's value in continuity and being able to have a conversation that we could all participate in. These canon wars that we've had in the United States have been going on for a long time. They've accelerated since George Floyd, but this isn't a new issue. Uh, Certainly by the late eighties and early nineties, There was starting to be a push to change the canon and to make it more racially representative of the country at large and to get more women writers into the canon. And then that means that some of the white men were pushed out. And that's something that's been going on for three decades now. So the canon that I read as an undergraduate in the late 1980s, that list of books would look nothing like what an undergraduate would be presented with in the United States at an elite college now. And the work that I take to be canonical, just within American literature, some of those names wouldn't register with a young college student today simply because they're not on the syllabi anymore. I do think there's a loss there, a loss of continuity, a loss of shared experience, a loss of shared meaning. And so, yes, I regard that as a a negative development. I don't know what what we're likely to be able to do to fix that but yes i think that's where we are well jonathan it's it's funny
1: you should bring up that was i was going to push you on on the canon a bit uh uh you know we've done a, bit, a little bit of soaking ourselves uh, in this topic over the over the last uh, couple of weeks and i was just watching uh harold bloom talk on on uh, on charlie rose uh, uh the much cancelled charlie charlie rose and and um <laughs> and he was talking about in the year 2000 uh on on with his book how to read about about the canon and and the things he was saying actually would would get him totally run out of town like he was he was saying
2: what was what did he say ricky he goes
1: he pointed at the table he said if this table yes. was
2: m- yeah well he had this analogy about the table and they're sitting behind this big uh quite sturdy wooden table and he said you know uh if if you bought this table and the legs fell off but it was made by a black person you you wouldn't accept it you would you would take it back you know uh so why why are we doing that with literature you know we, why are we reading this rubbish literature when when there's good sturdy literature out there is basically what he was saying and yeah as you say john that if you said that today uh, you would get completely cancelled
1: and look it, it is controversial but at the same time i think that the, the the broader point is it's not about whether the the person that the thing is it, it, we should be focusing on aesthetics no like 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 no, and not um that necessarily the background of the person because and 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 the things we're talking about it's not like for like like i, I actually went back to university i talk about this on the podcast, podcast a lot to study literature try and uh, pull myself up uh, a little bit and um we were for, we, we got to read uh, a handful of, of, of classic things like you know you read you, you had to read great expectations or something this is the first unit you know, that they put everyone through. but then they would put in a graphic novel like Persepolis or something or, or or even Mouse, which is good. Mouse is good as a graphic novel, but it's two graphic novels taking up what could be the space of so it's not like for like, when we're not talking about um, when we get rid of dostoevsky or, or someone like that, we're not replacing them necessarily with
0: a like-for-like, we're replacing them with Persepolis. Well, this is uh, the result of a movement in critical theory in British and American universities that's been going on for a long time. And the strong version of the argument that critical theorists make is essentially that any text is as good as any other as an object of our study. And so you see, Academics doing things like going to conferences where they study Buffy the Vampire Slayer Which is a not very distinguished American television series. Now they
1: cancelled a creator. Charlie Rose, Joss Whedon (laughs) He's
0: cancelled as well (laughs) I I don't think highly of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but I have to note that a lot of my favorite people got cancelled So I don't know what that says about me, but I was a huge Charlie Rose fan I was a huge Louis CK fan uh, and all, all my favorite writers have either been canceled or demoted. So I don't know whether that means I'm next. But um, yes, it has been a time of uh, of upheaval, to be sure, and a, and a disorienting time.
2: Well, people find it harder and harder to read, wh- whether it's finding time or, or being distracted. And largely, I would say, by their smartphone. Um, do you think we're losing the skill of sitting down and reading? Are, are we doomed to have like this 20-minute attention span? I think the short answer is yes.
0: Uh, I find it in myself even that I can't sit still for an hour and read something hard anymore. I can do it in 20 minute bites, but my uh, attention span has diminished significantly with the, with the smartphone. And I'm someone that purports to be really devoted to reading serious work. I think there's something that's uh, essentially neurological about this problem that uh, our brains have been... Rewired by these phones. And there are lots of marvelous things about the phone. I'm eight hours a day on the phone, so it would be hypocritical of me to complain. But I do sense that people aren't reading, especially younger people. And what I see is you may have read that rates of anxiety and depression and suicidal ideation among young people in the United States have risen strikingly in the last decade. Uh, And what you see is a lot of anxiety and a lot of loneliness, a lot of isolation. For me, one of the primary antidotes to those problems would be reading. And reading is just what young people are not equipped to do and not interested in doing right now. I think it's a significant problem. I wish I had better news or an answer for you, but I, I just don't.
2: Yeah, well, I, I recently spent uh, the weekend up up in a mountain here in Victoria called Mount Borbor, and I had no phone reception. And uh, I actually loved it. I, I got to read, uh, you know, a large section of a book, book I'm kind of uh, well, I just started, and 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 I, th- I felt that it was really healthy. So, I guess for some people, it's it's hard to disconnect. You can't not everyone can can you know trek out to the wilderness to to a place that has no phone reception. But, um, well, you know, do you think people should should have
0: these periods of detox? I think it's a great practice. I do this for myself. I force myself to go places where my phone must be turned off. Like I force my I go to I don't force myself, but I go to the opera, which is a place where I have to turn my phone off for three hours or um, you know any kind of an event or where you can, if you lack the discipline to do it on your own, where the venue forces you to turn your phone off and it's, it's marvelous. And I wish we could all schedule these, these periods in our day. Again, there are lots of things we can use, good things we can use the smartphone for. If you're getting on your phone to read the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal or, or, or the Sydney newspaper or what, what, what have you, I think that's a great use of your technology. But so many of us are using it for these quick hits these quick dopamine hits of something amusing something that reduces our anxiety something that uh flatters our sense of self shores up our sense of self and in the long run what that does is erodes our our inner resources i think and our ability to talk to ourselves and be with ourselves and regulate our own moods and our own anxieties and as we lose that capability this i think is why we see anxiety, depression and suicidal ideation among, especially among young people. These things are all up strikingly in the last decade in the United States. All the young people I know, 15 to 25, they're really struggling. Even the people that are well-educated and that have social capital and that have goals, they're all struggling enormously. And it sounds like something an old person would say, of course. But yes, I think technology is largely to blame.
1: Well, I think we have, I have an answer here. Uh... It, that I'm glad you, you you circled back to those those problems with with young people. My recommendation, and perhaps we can talk about this text briefly, uh, is I, I think that they should read Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, because, you know, uh, I would argue uh, that a lot of the problems that we are talking about that those young people are so worried about, he actually prefigured rather brilliantly in that book. Um, and and if you were having a pro- like sort of a hmm. Uh, moderate uh, flirtation with suicidal ideation or depression or something like that—not—not uh, not, maybe not the upper uh, echelons of that, but if you were on the lower to middle scale of that, I think hearing some of his characters talk about those conditions, like Kate Gompert talking about her, the way the way. Depression feels and what you're actually trying to do when you commit. Okay, I should probably put a trigger So we are talking about suicide at some point. Because it's one of those things you mention suicide, you get you get flagged down the way. So, but but hearing her talk about those things um, would it could possibly um, you know g- give you a, a way of of thinking and feeling about that problem and maybe even help you get out of yourself and into someone else's experience, let alone everything in the book about, which I think prefigures TikTok, which prefigures the, our entertainment obsession. So this is just a big opening uh, for you, Jonathan. Uh, w- what do you think of Infinite Jest and maybe some of the ideas that I've, I've,
0: I've put to you? Well, I should say, for those who aren't aware, you did an outstanding podcast episode on Infinite Jest, which I've which listened to with great interest and it returned me to some of the, some of the themes of the book. So thank you for that. Um, I do think that Wallace was prophetic in Infinite Jest, and, and t- putting your finger on TikTok, he certainly anticipated this culture of in- infinite entertainment that we have, that I mean, imagine if you told Wallace that we would be able to carry around a device in our breast pocket that would give us all the music, all the movie clips, all the, whatever we were interested in, it would deliver us, deliver it to us in 15 second to three minute bites. He would have found that terrifying, I'm sure. And what he circled around to in his unfinished last novel, The Pale King, was this concept of being able to tolerate boredom. And he himself had, I think, a limited ability to tolerate boredom. And I think he saw that as a, a weakness or a, uh, an Achilles heel that he suffered from that he shared with the rest of us. And I think he thought of, of fighting through that need that we feel to be constantly entertained or constantly validated frankly to have our sense of self shored up by some external force i think he saw that as a source of tremendous stasis and unhappiness in the culture i greatly wish that he could have finished the pale king because i think it had the potential to be an absolutely transcendent work of literature i think the fragment that he left is is fascinating and i would encourage people to pick that up. It's not an easy read, but it's a kind of summa of all the David Foster Wallace themes that you've raised. Uh, it marks a kind of terminal point in his thinking. I think, unfortunately, a terminal point literally in in that he died during its composition. But a, but a way of rounding out uh, some of the fascinating thoughts that fascinating ideas that are that are the substructure of Infinite chess. Where would you
1: place the the, the his novel, Infinite Jest, in, in, in terms of its legacy?
0: I think it's clearly the most important novel of the period, and I think he is the most important writer of his generation. I feel fairly confident in saying that he has come under some criticism for some of the personal behaviour of his, some unattractive personal behaviour that came out after he died, and perhaps that damaged his reputation briefly. But when you mention the name David Foster Wallace to people who read, to people who take literature seriously, even people that are not especially fans, you see a lift in their energy level, right? Everyone wants to talk about David Foster Wallace, whether they have entirely flattering things to say or not. He lifts he lifts our game as readers the way canal locks lift boats through a, through a canal, right? He makes us better, makes us more vital and dynamic as readers. I don't expect that to go away. I think we're going to be reading him for a long time.
1: Well, uh, I'm obviously delighted to hear you say all of those things. Uh, But, but, uh, and you did mention uh, his sort of, um, and I don't use this word really, but this is what uh, some people say, that he is a problematic figure. And uh, there is a society of people who celebrate his work, but uh, um, permeating through uh, this group um, is a constant obsession with with this side of his life. Um, Whereas I'd be happy to go to a convention where we only talked about the book and we never talked about him. We never talked about him or his parents or whatever. And we only talked about the book. We only talked about... uh, the the Montreal uh, based uh, terrorists or, or, or you know or the structure of the book or, or whether whether Don Gately and Hal, uh, the late lead character in the book ever really met you know in that that one tiny little moment or something like that. but they, but there seems to be the obsession. but also um, I've found I only get, I mean look, yeah we we asked one of your city general colleagues about uh dealing with normies and he sort of said that he doesn't associate with anyone who talks politics and all that and so he's he's got it all sectioned off in his life but certainly the people that i mentioned david foster Wallace, do i only get ambivalent reactions so i either get um a lot of uh, and look i'm not i'm only going to be um bring up gender here because uh, or, uh because it seems to be a thing women seem to be really disappointed that i like david foster wallace um, uh, which I've never expressed any disappointment at, 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 at any of the female authors that that they like or that I like or whatever. So they're always re- even whether they read it or they haven't, they're, they're, they're derisive, and so uh, I have to deal with that. But then you just deal with the people who only want to talk about um, the, um, these allegations that he's not around to, to uh, uh, talk about. Um, so I'm, I'm just wondering if you have you encountered any of this, or do you have you sort of managed to to, to dodge this sort of uh, reaction? Look, if if
0: you're Talking to people who want to talk about literature, you're doing better than I am because uh, I don't find a lot of interest in that kind of book talk in the in the in the people I know and and work with. Even though most people I know are are quite well educated in the formal sense, very few of them are serious readers. There may be also be a generational issue here. I'm 53. You're a good deal younger than that, so it may be that people of my generation are not quite so soaked in this uh idea of examining writers through the difficulties in their politics or their unattractive personal behavior the people i talk to about wallace when i do so uh continue to regard him as a transcendent writer and a source of great interest and fascination regardless of these problematic as you say biographical features of his life which incidentally seem to me not that shocking or appalling really i mean uh things that he's been criticized for in his personal behavior are, do not strike me as extraordinary. They strike me as the difficulties of a, a young man trying to work his way through romantic relationships and trying to find his vocation, trying to find his sense of self and um, uh, none, of, none of his conduct, except perhaps some of his conduct with Mary Carr, the American poet that he dated for some time. Aside from the Mary Carr stuff, none of this strikes me as a especially, uh, blameworthy.
2: Well, speaking of uh, problematic, you've written several fascinating essays and reviews for city journal, which, which everyone should be reading. Uh, you've written about Norman Mailer, John Updike, Orwell, Faulkner. You've also written about Cormac McCarthy, and we'll link to these in our show notes. The first two, at least, are what David Foster Wallace would call great male narcissists. He left out cis, het, and white, but we'll forgive him for that. Uh, maybe we'll go into some detail on a couple of these guys, but just generally, are you are you drawn to these figures? Be- because I think it's fair to say that most of them are, are seriously out of favor
0: today. I wasn't conscious of being drawn to them, but apparently I am, and, and now I'm sort of embracing the idea. I am interested in the question of... What we do with our ethical interests or our ethical preoccupations when we come to the page. And I think we need to steer a course between, on the one hand, irritably canceling writers whose sensibilities no longer conform with our own, and on the other hand, settling for a narrow aestheticism that solely focuses on literary devices and techniques and prose style, all of which are very important to me, and all and all of which I think really are both the beginning and the end of serious engagement with literature. But I don't think we want to be telling readers that there is no ethical dimension to literature or or, or that they can't be troubled by what they read or challenged by what they read in, in an ethical way. I think that's all fair. I just think that we need to slow down, have a little humility about what we read, and remember that Some people may stand in judgment of us one day the way we now stand in judgment of of these older writers who have become unfashionable. We're certainly wrong about some things, and we can't see it. And we're locked within the consciousness of our place and time just as they were. So I would hope that we could read them with a sense of generosity and, and humility. I don't find that in literary culture right now. I hope we can get back to it.
1: Well, what about this change, Jonathan? Like, I, I suppose I'm just I'm fascinated as you are, because I feel like I can. Rem- I talk about this a lot. I feel like I can remember not too long ago. I want to go back twenty years, uh, fifteen, twenty years. I, I remember there being you could have a. I feel like you could have a writers' festival and invite someone like a Hunter S. Thompson figure or something, and it would be mainly as as always, just a group of uh, left leaning people, center left people, Clinton. Uh, you know, uh, uh, voters and and all the way to the to the left or whatever. But you would go along, and there would be at this writers' festival. There'd be a problematic figure, and you'd sort of be rankled by the things they'd say. But then you'd walk out, walk out, and have a coffee and 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 chat about it, and and you'd be uh, sort of energized by it. And and I feel like that. Um, compare that with it. There's a famous example um, of uh, Lionel Shriver, who came to speak at a at a festival here in Australia in Brisbane. And she did a talk on if memory serves on cultural appropriation. I, I think it was what she, what she was talking about. I think she even put a sombrero on at the end. And a young um, uh, uh, Muslim Australian um, uh, uh, thinker uh, uh, called Yasmin uh, Abdelmagid uh, was in the in the audience, and she famously uh, stood up or spoke to her mother and said, "I can't listen to this." Mother stood up and walked out and then wrote an article about how proud she was to walk out of this 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 talk and and it seemed like at the time a few years ago that most of the culture well uh, 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 of the literary culture was behind her rather than you know that it was it was better to be her walking out and not hearing what lionel Shriver had to say than uh, being Lionel Shriver saying all the interesting things she was saying uh, about what danger uh, uh, fiction was was in. So, what do you think about this shift? And am I correct in 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 that there, that there was a time when this
0: might not have been the case? Well, you mentioned Norman Mailer, and uh, Mailer in the sixties uh, wrote a book called The Prisoner of Sex, which was a kind of anti-feminist screed, and he held an event. Uh, a famous event in, in sort of New York City literary history where he was attacked uh, by young feminist writers like Cynthia Ozick and, and others. And it became a famous documentary called Town Bloody Hall by the, by the documentarian D.A. Pennebaker. And it was quite a wild night. I mean, he was called names, he called them names in return. It was not, it was not a high point of civility in, in discourse, but everyone thought it was good fun. And no one thought that Mailer should stop writing or should be prevented from writing or disinvited from any place that he was, had been invited to appear. And that's the difference now, is that a writer in Mailer's position would be risking losing their book contract, losing their ability to lecture at universities, teach at universities, publish in mainstream literary publications. I don't know how to account for that shift, really but you're right that it's going on and it's happening on university campuses all across the United States.
2: It's fascinating. I I've, I've seen that documentary recently in in preparation for our chat today and what what I get from it is even though there's there's combat going on between people in the audience and Norman Mailer and and the feminists on the panel there there is a tremendous amount of fun that that people are having whereas today if you see what's happening on college campuses that they're, they're not listening or engaging or, or uh, w- with the speaker, or, or retorting anything that they're saying, they're just shouting them down. They're, they're yelling so that they cannot speak. And your example there, John, where you know uh, that that uh, that lady got up and walked out of the uh, of the Writers Festival, that 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 just shows it as well. Like, like people are not, they're not even willing to listen to someone speaking. I mean, have you seen that that shift
0: recently? I have, and. I would connect it to what is sometimes called the therapeutic culture in the United States. I get the sense that, I like to think of Australians as being a little hardier and a little more self-sufficient and a little more stoical, but maybe I'm wrong. But in the United States, we have this therapeutic culture where people are led to believe they need to be validated at all times and they need to feel safe. And they don't feel a sense of agency about controlling their own emotional response to something that might be difficult or stressful or just not what they want to hear at that particular moment. And so people literally feel that they're having violence done to them by having to hear a speaker with whom they disagree and a speaker who may have something unpleasant to say about their particular group. And there's just a loss of the capacity to stay in the moment and to hear someone out and to respond in a, in a way that's measured emotionally and sy- syntactically and this is what we're breeding out of of college students in the United States and so what we have is the most educated generation in the history of the United States in terms of degrees more people are going to college and getting graduate degrees than ever before but people who despite their despite the degrees that they hold are very weak as critical thinkers simply because they can't tolerate the turbulence of of dialogue and disagreement and debate. They can't stand up to it emotionally. And without that, it's hard to have a conversation. Mm.
2: Well, just circling back to Writers' Festivals, we had a number of years ago, we had the Melbourne Writers' Festival, and uh, I remember they they disinvited a number of speakers who were were sort of billed to come and speak. I think uh, Bob Carr, former New South Wales Premier, and and maybe Lionel Shriver was someone, or maybe it was Jermaine Greer, was was cancelled from coming or disinvited, but also this writers' festival seemed to have a lot of stuff going on that wasn't about books. So it, it, they they famously had uh, a fake like funeral wake for a a, a, a sort of low level TV personality, which you know people love here in Australia, but but people in America would not know who Magda Zabanski is. But they had a wake for her, and they had a number of other sort of more more theatrical uh almost like stunts that, that were sewn into this writers festival. Didn't they
1: have a hugging a hugging of um like support animals or something? Oh like yes, that? they it had was...
2: something with support animals. I, I can't remember all the different things they had, but it wasn't really about books and what do you think that says when when a writers festival can be more about other things
0: than, than books stunts, stunts and, and, and sideshow side yeah. gimmicks. I think it's, well, first of all, I should say you're destroying all my ideas about Australia because I, I, hope, to, I hope to hear from you that Australia was immune from this. Melbourne and Melbourne
1: is, is a bit like Portland, you know, oh, so oh dear. There, are,
2: there are places in
1: Australia that are more, uh, you know, they don't have time for all
2: that, but Melbourne is but, pretty. But, but Australia as a whole, we, we, we sort of do follow the trends of the US, so we may be a few years behind you guys.
0: Well, I think there's been a loss of confidence in literary culture and a loss of the loss of confidence in the value that that books bring to the discourse. And that's partly because of perhaps the rise of prestige television, new, potent, valuable, interesting, dynamic ways of telling stories and shows like The Sopranos and Mad Men and Breaking Bad have taken some of the oxygen away from long-form writing, I would say. And also because, as you noted, we don't have a common set of books to talk about so much anymore. And so we're leaping across a wider and wider divide between what I might have read and what you might have read as, as educated people. And so perhaps because of that loss of confidence, there's a desire to bring people stunts and other things to bring them inside the tent. I just don't know, but yes, I think there's less confidence in our willingness to sit together and talk about books and to and to work things through. I certainly see that in America. Well, one of the uh, shows that you mentioned,
1: Mad Men, I think we all like that because it is a very literary show. And Matthew Weiner famously drew upon uh, a few authors to 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 you know to to give him inspiration. Uh, and full disclosure, the next author I think is one of the people that uh, he would have used in his in his research. I'm going to say officially on this podcast, Jonathan, that I love John Updike, and <laughs> I want to read you out a little excerpt from one of his books to kick kickstart the conversation uh, on 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 one of the essays you've written. So he says, and this comes from a month of Sundays. Oh, Alicia, my mistress, my colleague, my advisor, my betrayer. What would I not give? A hand? No, not even a finger, but perhaps the ring from my finger to see you again, mounted at the base of my belly, your shoulders caped with sunshine, your head flung back so your jawbone jaw traced its own omega, your hair on false fire, your breasts hung undefended upon the dainty cage of your ribs, and, the, and anxious for any mouth to tease them, any hand to touch them, but untouched, taking pleasure, it seemed, in their own unresisted swaying. In the wash of light, <laughs> I missed that last bit. in the wash of light. Sorry, I didn't want to. Do it. I missed out the light on the on the on the swaying breath. Uh, so, uh, with that in mind, Jonathan, what's your read on the career and the almost complete erasure of John
0: Updike? Well, you landed on the right word there, undefended. I mean, that's one of those Updike touches, isn't it? Uh, where he finds just the right word in the right place. I, I fear that very funny. It's a very a very humorous uh, uh, word to put there. It's humorous and it's I think it's sexy too. I mean uh uh Updike sometimes is cited for having written badly about sex. I don't feel that way at all. He wrote unromantically about sex and he wrote about the indecorous sounds and smells of of the sex act. But that's his duty as a realist, isn't it? And I think he did it did it extraordinarily well. I just wonder whether American readers have the ear anymore to hear what's so marvelous about Updike, because our aesthetic sensibilities are dulled, I think, now by the way that politics creeps into every aspect of our reading and every aspect of our life. And I think people are suspicious of style. I think they're resentful of style. And Updike was such a gifted stylist from the beginning. Most of us who write or would like to write aren't going to write that well, and So there is a, perhaps a desire to say, well, that's not what really matters in in literature. But of course, how someone's writing lands on our ear is the beginning of our experience of reading. And it's essential to taking the full measure of, of a writer like Updike. I feel that that capacity is declining, not only in everyday readers, but in literary critics, too. I find that a lot of critics, even really even really gifted and serious critics don't talk about style very much. And we don't have a good vocabulary to talk about style. James Wood, who is the literary critic for the New Yorker and is is probably the leading English language critic, uh, does do a good job of talking about style. Clive James, uh, a fellow Australian uh, was good on style also, the late Clive James. But a lot of young critics that I read now watch a hurry past style and structure and literary form to talk about the novel instead of talking inside the novel and trying to take the reader inside the experience of what makes something pleasurable or not pleasurable. I wish we had a better vocabulary of style in in American literary criticism, and I hope to try to build on that in my own work. Is, is he all style and no substance? I don't think so. Uh, Updike was a Christian and uh, a kind of Kierkegaardian thinker, a Protestant. And I think his theology is underneath everything he wrote. It's not a strongly prescriptive view of religion. It's a kind of mainstream, post-war American Protestant, uh, (laughs) sex-positive, ecumenical, mildly politically liberal Protestantism that was at the center of American culture when Updike got his start. Some people find that he's lacks moral intensity, perhaps, or there's a complacency in his worldview. He liked the United States. He thought the United States was a marvelous country. He enjoyed being an American. He enjoyed being an American writer. Well, that's enough, isn't it, to get him canceled? He was at times a critic of the United States. He certainly saw through to the end of our materialism. He saw the dead end in our materialism, I think, he saw the dead end in our narcissism and in our obsession with ourselves. But yes, fundamentally he thought of me. He wrote in, I think it was rabbit at rich. One of his great novels uh, by and large, Americans are the happiest people the world has ever seen. I think it was possible to write that in 1980. I don't know that it would be possible to write that now. In fact, I think if you wrote that now, it would be read as satirical. Um, this isn't a happy, very country, right? A very, a very happy country right now, but Updike felt that he lived in a happy country, in a in a blessed country, and yes, that's part of what makes him unpopular these days.
1: Well, there's so many reasons. I mean, he wrote a book uh, called "Terrorist" in in the early noughts, where he he. Uh, dared to get outside of his lane and and sort of write about a young G but he was doing that a long time ago. I think he wrote a song, a book that was set in was it Africa that 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 was pretty yes pretty uh out there. So those things are off the off the menu, but I'm fascinated by this sort of wholesale erasure of him as this sort of uh, a wasp elite literary elite or something because to me he his uh story, his upbringing and everything in Pennsylvania and whatever the characters he writes about is wholly exotic so I read it and I'm fascinated absolutely fascinated by that mid to, his sort of mid to late 20th century uh, uh, attitude about uh obviously the, the ruminations about about relationships and about America and what uh, about mortality whatever it is is absolutely fascinating just little things as well uh um, this obsession with with oral sex, and and like <laughs> everyone's really obsessed with oral sex, and like and 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 the the sin of it, you know what I mean? And and um so to me, from from our our, our godless times now, I think all of that is absolutely fascinating. So, and and maybe just as a, as a, as a side note as well, if I was uh, like an Iranian Australian or something, and that was my culture, and you know that was a part of it, why would I want to only read? Um, like books about like Persian or Iranian writers or something like why wouldn't you want to read like i found i found out what got me into John Updike was um uh Murakami i think Murakami said uh, that he loved the centaur or something i think it was in one of, that 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 was but i was like what's the centaur and then i read this book and then uh so we've got a japanese a very very japanese writer um writing uh you know saying that he loves uh, um John Updike, and to me, I thought that that's to me that was correct a, a correct cultural uh interplay so so what what's your what's your view, Jonathan?
0: I think we do minority groups or outgroups of any kind a disservice by pretending that they need pandering to or that we strengthen them by urging them into a race essentialist view of their own humanity. I don't think race essentialism was a good way of looking at the world in the 1950s in Mississippi, and I don't think it's a good way of looking at the world from Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn in 2022. I think that we ought to have the cultural confidence and, frankly, the right, the sense of belonging, to feel that all of the canon belongs to all of us and that Faulkner's work belongs to me as a Yankee, that Updike's work belongs Everyone that Murakami's work belongs to everyone. I hate to see us retreat into these narrow, parochial, identitarian ways of seeing the world and of seeing literature. To me, it seems like a disaster.
1: Yes, well, you know, so I think to I agree, I agree with all of that. And you know, uh, you know, I, I am just curious though because you live in New York. Um, we've already we've already talked about the fact that you know finding people to talk about literature is is hard enough, but you know, in is it possible that John Updike would would even come up in a New York conversation? Because it's just weird because he was a fixture of the of the New Yorker magazine for decades. It seemed like he was um, a Caesar like figure in, in these circles. And to, and and even some of the some of the videos I was watching in in, in preparation, just where he was celebrated by the Times, uh, New York Times uh, on on video for like an hour or something, where he'd be talking. I just feel like, and that was as little as ten years ago, or some twelve years ago. So it's um, it just seems very strange that that that. I I mean, is this guy completely gone? Like when you when you wrote your article for, for First Things, uh, uh, oh sorry, not for First Things, for, for the City Journal on on um, uh, on Updike. W- is that something that that you you think as uh, uh, New Yorkers would be
0: able to read and go, oh yes,
1: I know who I know this who we're talking about here.
0: Updike is an enormously divisive figure, and The New Yorker magazine is a little bit divisive, too. Updike is so strongly identified with The New Yorker, for which he wrote for six decades almost. The New Yorker is the establishment magazine of literary New York. It's the place everyone both wants to get into and feels that they're shut out of. So if you're a young writer on the make in New York City, The New Yorker is is the top of the heap. And so naturally, there's resentment and pushback that comes from that. Updike went to Harvard. He was winner of the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize. And, and he was as lauded a figure as, as there was in American letters of the time, in his generation. And so there is some resentment there because he was such a successful figure and he did take up so much space for so long also think there's something at work here that is less to do with cancel culture or generational upheaval. And that is the natural slackening of interest that happens after a writer dies. When a big writer dies, there's a a rush of, of interest in his work and anything that was out of print comes back into print and he gets all the obituaries and encomia and tributes. And then everybody's kind of written out on that, on that person for a while. And there is a diminution of interest. And then hopefully, if the writer is strong enough and the literary culture of that moment is a fit for whatever he or she wrote, then, then they come back again. There are some writers who don't ever fall out of fashion. I don't know that Faulkner's ever fallen out of fashion. But even Hemingway has had enormous sweeps in his reputation over over several decades, rises and falls in interest in his work. Some of this is just inevitable, I think, and, and Updike may be suffering from that in addition to this problem that I tried to put my finger on in City Journal, which is uh, that his culture has passed out of the majority in the United States and that he is, to some extent, a figure of resentment.
1: I just never understood the the... the... If people are being intellectually honest, you should be able to say to them, like, you know, do you really think that, that like, you know, to use a, a a a cinema example, it's like, it'd be like people being dismissive of Pulp Fiction or something. And then you just go, do you really, you know, not giving this movie it's, you're really not, are you really saying it's not a, 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 an absolute masterpiece? Like, I don't understand why this happens, why people just suddenly start to shrug a bit and go, yeah, I mean, you know, John Updike, is, is he that good? And you go, yeah, he is. He is good, hundred percent good, all all through. So, like it's like that word line from Woody Allen in Manhattan when he says, uh, "Right on the money every time." Um,
0: <laughs> that that I, I quote that line very frequently in other contexts, I should say. <laughs> yes. But uh, Woody that's... Woody Woody Allen, another favorite of mine, who has. Uh, suffered I don't know cancellation I think his movie I think he's still making movies but yes um yes his his star has damned as well
1: I brought him up at a at uh uh here at a function the other just the other day and um yeah the the interaction went pretty much how you think it would go everyone <laughs> just conflating every like it's the, the old thing is um uh I I don't know what he did but he probably did it and it was bad and you and you <laughs> go well it's there's a few things going on there's a few things and you know anyway it's, i think it's a topic for another time but um uh on to just on another figure you've re, you've written about uh uh since we're doing our survey of 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 these writers uh you know cormac mccarthy is another figure he's he's written a pair of novels that you've that you've done a review for in in first things uh and so what's your assessment of cormac mccarthy uh and and the novels and the rest of his over? Uh, uh, i'll just have a, a quote from your piece here which is really nice you say quote Uh, Yet McCarthy's writing itself has always had an unmistakable urgency A great deal of the American literary tradition passes through him Like oil through an engine What he has made himself, that memorial fusion of language, imagination and myth Seems likely to stand for a long time The Passenger and Stella Maris are not McCarthy's best novels but But they are not quite novels at all But they deepen our appreciation of the philosophical exploration That has been his career's deepest motive
0: I had not been a McCarthy reader. My father, who is one of the last great American readers, has been urging McCarthy on me for decades. My father had spines of these vintage paperbacks of McCarthy's on his bookshelf back when McCarthy was still living in an unheated trailer in the New Mexico desert 30 or 40 years ago. So he was ahead of his time. For whatever reason, McCarthy didn't get through to me. First things asked me a piece on McCarthy, I pretended to possess the expertise necessary to write it, which I certainly didn't. I had to read eight or nine of his novels in very rapid succession, and I was just astonished by the power of his prose, by the depth and integrity of his vision, uh, by the, the power of his mind. I really think he is an extraordinary writer. I'm embarrassed that I came to him so late For people that are interested in reading McCarthy, I think Blood Meridian is the book that's most likely the last. Uh, All the Pretty Horses is the book that made him famous. I think Oprah selected All the Pretty Horses as as one of her book club selections. And so that's what made McCarthy rich uh, and changed his life. I want Oprah to read Blood Meridian. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a very violent uh, book. It's a very disturbing book. But as a performance in prose style, it's a tremendously long novel. As a performance in English prose style, it it is one of the real feats um, of of American letters. And I don't know that I'd necessarily encourage people to start there. A good place to start might be The Road, one of his later novels, which, which was made into a not especially good movie starring Viggo Mortensen and Charlize Theron. But it is um, a book that is a little bit more accessible in terms of prose style, but it fits it fits right into McCarthy's over, I think. And um, so if one is daunted by the 500 plus pages of Blood Meridian, the road might be a point of entry. Or No Country, perhaps. <laughs> no Country is a controversial book in the McCarthy uh, canon. It's a book that did not receive necessarily the best reviews. I thought they did make a very good movie out of it. The Coen Brothers made a marvelous movie with Har- Javier Bardem and and others. Um, I agree. That's a, that's a good place to enter. It's it's a genre novel, I would say, but it it plays with plays with genre with the true crime, not the true crime, with the with the noir novel in a way that I think is very interesting. I think it's a marvelous read, and and that's another good place to start as well.
2: Now, his his workmanlike attitude and, and, and his lack of interviews, you know, letting the work do the talking, seems, you know, completely alien in today's social media landscape. Um, I think his work gains because I, I don't know what he thinks about Trump, for example. He has no Huffington Post or Salon pieces out there that I know of. Uh, what do you think of these side missions that, that modern authors have to engage in? Do, do they get in the way of the work?
0: I'm of two minds about this. On the one hand, I think biographical exploration does have a place. I read literary biographies. I am interested in them. I'm interested to know about the life and the work and to to try to blend the two and to try to find the motives for the work in the life. But yes, the relentless publicity that is expected of writers now, the expectation that essentially the writer rather than the publishing house, will carry the responsibility for, for publicizing a book. Of course, that gets in the way of writing. It gets in the way of the way a book is received. It favors writers who are good on television, good on radio. Those might not necessarily be the best writers. I doubt Faulkner would have been a good radio guest. You couldn't have counted on him showing up sober, for one thing. Hemingway was terrible on television. So being able to talk about your novel is not the same as being able to write a great novel. And so, of course, this noise that we have around the publication of books now does tend to blur the signal of the book itself. I don't know what can be done about that, but that that is where we yeah, are. Yeah,
2: well, that, that's a pet peeve of mine is when when artists go into huge detail explaining their song or their their opera or their symphony or, or whatever you know, and they don't just let it stand there on its own two feet. But what's interesting about uh, Cormac McCarthy is his side projects are mathematics and physics and science and there's a quite a quite a, a amazing. Little, I don't know if you can call it a documentary, but it's, it's an interview with him, and that's all he talks about is his love of science, and, and it just uh, it sort of blows my mind that's, that's, that there are people out there that exist like this. You know, it seems like Cormac McCarthy just wrote these novels as a side project. He rattled them off, you know, on a couple of weekends he had off, you know, in between doing maths and physics, you know, and... Um, uh, what, what what do you think about, yeah, about about novelists having these deep interests outside
0: of of writing novels? Well, of course, David Foster Wallace was like that too. and and um apparently Wallace was a fairly accomplished mathematician um and an accomplished linguist and and he had a lot of intense intellectual interests away from his career as a novelist and an essayist. Let's not let's not forget the tennis as well. He's very good at tennis <laughs> and 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 the, and the tennis, which was, the source of a lot of his greatest writing i'm i'm not a tennis guy not a tennis player but uh, uh he wrote so beautifully about the game uh uh anyway especially in infinite jest but in some of his essays as well mccarthy was associated has been associated for decades with something called the santa fe institute which is mainly a collection of mathematicians and physicists and biologists and cosmologists and 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 other people who who live in a world with which I am scarcely acquainted, to be frank. But McCarthy was deeply interested in this stuff, and he was one of, the, one of only a handful of humanists that was invited to join the Santa Fe Institute. He often said, on the rare occasions when he consented to be interviewed, that writing novels was the least interesting thing about him, or the least of his own interests, I think was what he said. I don't know if he was having us on a little bit there. Uh, all these enormous, densely composed novels got written somehow. So he was spending some time writing and and he was certainly a highly accomplished reader. So I think he was having a little joke at our expense maybe, but there's no question that his interest in in, in math and physics uh, was genuine. And and I take it he was accomplished in these fields in his way, although I would not be in a position to judge that.
1: I, I've got a... a I have got aai do not want to bring in another writer necessarily, but... Uh... I'm so glad that Cormac McCarthy isn't on Twitter, you know, and and because reading Stephen King's tweets is has been really damaging to me. Do you know what I mean? Like he, um, and it's not because of his politics necessarily. Like I have nothing wrong, no, no problem with what, what you, who you vote for or what you believe. It's just that he's so staunch and, to, to, to be frank, a little so demented about about what he believes and so one-eyed that it sort of ruins, um, the parts of his novels that that are wonderfully problematic. Like there, 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 there are there are we've got killers ruminating on things and and we've got evil people doing good things and 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 everything in between and i just love this idea of of artists you know occupying a middle space between uh, being being sort of ex- like explorers they're like, they are like o- odysseus they tie themselves to the mast they listen to the song of the sirens so that we and bring it back for us you know and it's just a bit difficult if odysseus gets cut cut down after listening to the sirens and says yeah you know um, those Trump people are the basket of deplorables, and you go, geez, it sort of uh, it sort of ruins
0: the the act a bit. What do you what do you think? Well, I'm not on Twitter myself, and and I don't uh, I very rarely go on Twitter. I'm not familiar with what Stephen King might have written. I don't necessarily think all that highly of Stephen King as a writer, although I don't pretend that what he does is easy to do. It's just not what interests me particularly. I do think Dolores Claiborne is a pretty good novel, and they made a pretty good movie out of it. I wonder how much pressure writers feel now to toe the line, and how much of what they're doing on Twitter is driven by a desire to draw attention to themselves, driven by a desire to get on the home team. But yes, people who write for a living and write well for a living and put out into the world something that is finely crafted and the product of maybe a couple of years of, of thought and revision and rewriting and long walks and anxiety and despair, for them then to go on Twitter and publish their first thought on a topic, they're probably doing themselves a disservice and probably doing their readers a disservice as well, regardless of whether we agree with their politics. I think what we want from writers is, is their best their most cultivated thinking, not what's at the top of mind. So yes, if writers would stay off of Twitter, I think the world would be a better place.
1: Well, Jonathan, uh, I'm just a bit mindful of time. We have uh, all many questions about Freud uh, uh, that we never got around to asking you, which I hope you will come back and uh, uh, do it another time. But uh, perhaps I just wanted to give you the final word uh, uh, on this topic. Perhaps we've talked about we've done a big survey of, of a range of different authors, and and to be honest, some of our audience, I think, might be a little daunted by some of what they've heard. So could you g- maybe just uh, give us you know uh, a little pep talk on on why and how
0: uh, we should be reading? I think we should think of reading first and foremost as a source of pleasure, and we shouldn't be embarrassed by the pleasure we take in reading. I don't think we should read the way we eat our fiber, or go for a run when we don't feel like it. I think we should read to bring ourselves joy, to make the world a little bit less lonely. I think that one of the beauties, especially of reading fiction, is it provides so much vicarious experience in a world in which we're only really going to know intimately perhaps a few dozen people in our lifetime. We might have thousands of acquaintances, professional relationships, neighbors. People we see at Christmas, but we're only going to know intimately a very small number of people. Fiction gives us the ability to expand our vicarious experience and expand our acquaintanceship with the broad human family and human experience. And I would encourage people to not be daunted by books that have a reputation for being difficult. And if you read 50 pages of something and you feel like you're still reading, because you should be, rather than because you're having a good time, throw the book across the room. Let's take the let's take the shame or the pressure out of our reading. Let's take the should out of it. Let's read because we want to, because we feel that we're being enriched because we're laughing, because we're aroused, because we're provoked or motivated. Let's bring the fun back. Let's leave the politics out, or at least, Let's make the politics secondary or subsidiary to what's on the page. I think we should seize pleasure, freedom, joy, back as readers, and let's let the academy and the left and the politicians not tell us what to read and think and feel. Let's trust ourselves as our own best guides in our reading. I think if we do that, we're gonna be fine. We
1: should present ourselves undefended to the work. (laughs) I agree completely.
2: I wish I'd said that instead of the long
0: (laughs) (laughs) question. You did good. Well, Jonathan,
2: thanks so much for being on the show. We would love to have you back sometime in the future. Uh, We we have a final question that we ask all our guests, and we'd like to know what you're reading right now.
0: Well, so I'm still reading a lot of uh, literature about Freudian psychoanalysis. I'm working on a long essay for City Journal, probably to be published in the summer of this year about Freudian psychoanalysis. I briefly considered changing professions. I was a somewhat disgruntled lawyer and I started taking classes at a, at a psychoanalytic institute with the idea that I would change my career. I didn't do that, uh, but I made a lot of friends at the institute. It's a fascinating subculture. It was at the mainstream of American psychiatry for decades and now it's not. And yet people continue to train in psychoanalysis and continue to see patients. And so it's an interesting field. I've got a stack of books to get through. And uh, I hope to say something interesting and provocative about psychoanalysis in uh, June or July. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Thank you, guys. Really enjoyed it very much. Thank you.
2: Thank you for listening to The New Flesh Podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live The New Flesh.